0: You're listening to 100 p.m. episode 39. You're listening to 100 p.m., the show where we're interviewing 100 expert product people from startups to enterprise and everything in between to bring you all the actionable advice you need to succeed in product management. Today, I'm talking to Jennifer Bozenberg, VP of Product Management at Active Campaign Inc. If you're joining us for the first time, be sure to visit our website, 100productmanagers.com, the web's fastest-growing resource for product management topics, recommended resources, and online learning. I'm Susanna Bate, product coach, startup mentor, and host of today's show. Let's dive right in and say hello to Jen B. Hi,
1: I am Jennifer Busenbach, and I am a product manager.
0: Now, you're not just a product manager. You, up until very recently, were the director of product management at a company called Braintree here in Chicago. A tiny little company called Braintree. Tell us uh, a little bit about how you came to be there, sort of going back in time to the beginning of your story.
1: Sure. So I started my career in technology a little over 17 years ago. Um, I had moved to Chicago to do AmeriCorps, which is a domestic version of the Peace Corps. And I loved the city so much that I just wanted to stay. So (laughs) my criteria was I need a job that will pay me enough money to pay my rent and my bills my first official job after that was a temp, um, receptionist at the Wrigley company. Um, so basically I was just buzzing in executives. My, the most important thing was to make sure they didn't have to wait at the door, um, and chewing gum the whole time. Um, after that, I got a job as a recruitment, um, or recruiting admin at a company called ThoughtWorks, which is a consultancy out of Chicago. And that was great. I just, you know, scheduled interviews. I was just kind of trying to figure out, you know, what do I do next? I was a psychologist major Um, and then the dot-com bubble hit and they had to start laying folks off but they were still building product that needed to be tested so someone had the great idea of why don't we take um, folks that we've already hired that we know are a good culture fit, they know about our business, and try to train them on doing um, manual testing. So I was chosen to go down that path. Um, it was something that I kind of had an affinity for. I did that, and then that rolled into being a business analyst, which rolled into then being a um, what we called an iteration manager, which is similar to a scrum master, and then a project manager at the end of my career at ThoughtWorks. Two of the developers that I had worked with on my last project there had started at Braintree. Uh, And they called me and said, we really need a product manager. Can you please, please join us? I said, you're crazy. I've been here for nine years. I'm really happy. I don't think I want to start at this company that's really tiny. I know nothing about payments. But one evening, I decided to take a dinner invitation for a free meal and some wine. Good plan. Yeah. And um, after that meeting, I just knew that I was gonna join the company as the first product manager so really that was my first Branchery really was my first job as a product manager I had worked in all other capacities but I never was really a product owner until I came to Branchery, um, and that was seven and a half years ago
0: and how big was the company when you joined it
1: I was employee number nine so I was the first p.m. and I think at the time our development team was maybe five developers We were working out of Wicker Park. We had an office that was one room. So it was four, and then we had a couple remote devs. So I think there were three devs and myself working out of a really tiny room out of Wicker Park. And um, our operations team, which was I don't know if I can't do the math offhand, but like five. (laughs) They were located in Bartlett, which is a suburb of Chicago.
0: Wow, so the the real startup dream. Just one step up from a garage, basically.
1: Basically, and it kind of functioned like a garage. It wasn't very nice, um, but it worked, and it was really fun, and we did a lot of great work out of that office.
0: Yeah, I mean, I would guess it worked. How many employees approximately by the time that you left, which was just quite recently? Yeah,
1: I think that it was approaching over 600. I think also when I left, and I may not be getting these numbers right, the product team, and when we when I say product team, we considered the product team to be PMs, designers, and development, um, was approaching around 300.
0: Wow. Let's go back for a moment to when you pivoted from recruitment uh, administrator to quality assurance person. Mm-hmm. You had never tested software before?
1: No, I didn't even really have any thought. I didn't know anything about software. I didn't know anything about development until I started recruiting and, tr- and learning, like, what are we looking for on a resume? I just had no clue this whole thing happened. Right. Or, like, this stuff went behind the scenes, and it was things that I was using in
0: real life. So, right. no, I had no idea. And, and you said you were good at it. I mean, obviously, you were good at it because the company just kind of kept promoting you into more and more into more and more roles that required more and more uh, responsibility and involvement why do you think you were good at quality assurance
1: i think what made me good was i i just was able to think in a different way because your whole thought process when you're testing something is you want to break it and i was never satisfied so i wouldn't just kind of click around a few times and be like okay this seems to be doing really well i'd always think of different edge cases. And I always wanted to be very thorough. I'm very detail oriented, which is an, a, a PM, very a good quality for a PM. But I always just dug deeper and went further and always wanted to just, you know, keep going and going and going until I found the smallest thing. And so I think that's kind of that. That attention to detail, when you're doing it was manual at the time, um, is really important, and I think that kind of showed through because the stuff I was ultimately testing goes to production. So if there are things that I'm missing, that's showing up to the end customers. So I was able to kind of to do a really good job of making sure that what we were putting out. Of course, things will always have bugs, but nothing that was major. I was able to kind to catch those types of things in the work that I was doing.
0: Yeah, I think quality assurance is a very interesting starting point in so many ways, because to, to, to the point of your own experience, whether you know software or don't know software, what you quickly have to learn is use cases. Mm-hmm. And what are the different paths that anybody is going to take. And the more that you start building up like a database of understanding around different use cases, different paths in and out, different ways to move between modules or features or different ways you might like to, the more you're actually really building an architectural mindset that once you, you know, get a pen in hand or, or you know, now a software tool in hand, it's actually much easier to start to think about workflow diagrams and wireframes and some of those uh, deliverables that that come from the user experience design role.
1: Yeah, I think that's a really great point. I also think another thing that it helps you with is prioritization and thinking about that because you know as a PM, you can take a path where you're trying to design and develop for every different use case that a user might take and the probability of them, you know, that happening is so low. So you don't want to spend your time doing something that isn't, you know, kind of like the 80 to 90% of how people are going to use your product. So you see a lot of that when you're doing testing because you do, you know, you go down those rabbit holes and you want to do that as a QA person. But when you then come up with a list of 100 things that need to be fixed, you very quickly can kind of realize, well, like for me to get to this number 50, I was like doing all these crazy clicks and going all around. Maybe that's not as important as like this blatant, like I tried to load the page and it's just not loading. So you kind of also get some experience in having to kind of, to prioritize the, the types of things you want the developer to developers to work on. So I thought that that also is helpful when you become an analyst or you become a PM because you already kind of have that thought process as well.
0: Tell us about the business analyst role as it applied to you. What was the responsibility? What were you really being required to do? when you shifted out of QA?
1: Yeah, so the business analyst role was really working with our customers, which were our clients because it was consultancy. Um, So that could have been um, somebody who was on the business side of things and in the operations teams, or it could be the product manager who is working directly with the customers. When you're in a consultancy role, I didn't really have face-to-face interactions with customers directly. I was kind of gotten, I got that through the product manager or product owners that were working with them. But other than that, Um, you you're still thinking as you would as a product manager, which is like I'm taking all of this information from all of these different sources and I'm trying to synthesize through that and figure out what it is that we need to build. Because oftentimes you hear you hear that that the saying that they may tell you what they want, but you need to figure out what they need right? Because you want everything. You will want all the bells and whistles, of course, but that's not practical. So you, you know, as a business analyst, it was gathering those requirements, kind of thinking through them, figuring out, okay, well, how does this apply to what we're currently building, what is already there? Um, And then working directly with the developers to make sure that they're building what it is that you had in mind. Mm -hmm. Um, And then just, you know, throughout the iterative process, just having conversations with them, because a lot of times as well, what you want them to build isn't always what comes out in the end because there are things that happened or that are not possible. So playing that role, at, that was all involved in the VA role that I played um, at ThoughtWorks. So those are a lot of skills that I gained that are applicable to being a PM.
0: Were you writing user stories back then or was it more like product requirements documents? What was your kind of output to the developers?
1: Yeah, it was more user stories. So we, um, we never... Uh, ThoughtWorks was very much um, early on proponents of the Agile methodologies. And and Agile is such a loaded term because it can mean so many different things to so many different companies. Um, But we didn't write really long user stories like documents, you know, and then hand them over. It was very much card cards. There would be, before they developed um, software called Mingle, uh, which is a, a card tracker, we would physically have cards. On a wall where you would write the high level, like what the story was, and then you would just write a doc. I my approach to it was very much um, kind of giving a summary of what you're trying to accomplish, and then I love bullet points because you are ha- it's it's a conversation that you're having with a developer, and you can't capture that all in story cards. Um, well, you could, but it would become outdated very quickly, and it would take you a lot of time. So yeah, I did have that type of output, but it was it was more much more lightweight than maybe the typical kind of like waterfall documentation that that some companies or BAs produce.
0: I love that you had the experience of sort of running a manual process for production because I think I see this a lot. People will come to me and say, you know, what what tools should I use for for ticket tracking? And the real question is, what is the process that you're running with your developers? Tools are great accelerators for process that's been established and agreed to internally. But they're also a very easy way to get lost Mm -hmm. in focusing on the wrong things if you don't kind of have the underpinnings of, of what works. Yes. So you all were just like writing on cue cards and then pinning them to the wall and yeah.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And even at Braintree, we were doing physical card walls co- until we couldn't anymore. When you start having folks that are remote, that are in different locations, it's really hard to have a card wall. But I remember putting up cork board in one of our offices so that we could, we could do the physical card, card wall. But yeah, I totally agree with that. The tools, um, you and you will change over time. We changed over time. It just depends on what your process looks like and what works for you. And I'm really a proponent of like, what is going to be the easiest thing to get to the end state without adding a bunch of process? into it because sometimes those tools you have to put in required fields and it's like what are those do you need those are you reporting on those what's the process but it's like oh that's just the process and it's like i'm not for that i'm for like what's the minimum amount you need to do in order to like make sure you're having those conversations and building the right thing
0: yeah yeah Uh, that's another really good point is starting to conform your own process around the constraints of the tool is almost never a good idea because that tool was built for a specific type of process that worked for somebody. Mm-hmm. And if it doesn't work for you, then, then it does, you know, call to the attention. Do we need this?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And when I, when I started, it's interesting because we went from, when I started BrainTree, we were using Mingle. And the reason we were using that is a lot of us were from ThoughtWorks. That was the tool we were familiar with. And when you're a consultant, you're also doing a little bit more heavy weight of like estimating with the developers because you're, you have to come up with project plans for, your, for your, the company that you're working for and budgets around that. Um, there's a lot more process that goes into that. And it's, that's very fair. But when moving to Braintree, it was a way more loose than that. We didn't do estimates. It was like, we know we need to do this. And we all know that estimates aren't always the best thing, but we're all, we all know what goal we're trying to get to. So let's not waste time on that. And we found that that mingle at the time, it became too cumbersome, it was too hard. I was a little resistant to change because I was just familiar with it. And I think I actually went on vacation and I come back and the developer's like, ah, uh, Boozy, which is my nickname, we're using Trello now. And I'm like, what? And they just started, they spun up Trello. They found it so much easier to use to like put story cards in. And um, I was like, oh, you know, I'm going to have to move everything over, and it doesn't do this, that, and whatever. But then I came to the, it came to the fact, it's like, no, this is actually a much easier tool to use, and we're really not using all of that stuff that I had used in the past. And so we went from something a little bit more cumbersome to something really lightweight. And until recently, a lot of the teams were still using Trello. But as um, you get to be a bigger company, we are part of PayPal. Um, there are other things that you need to do. You can capitalize software, and there are things like that, and you need better tracking in place. So the teams have now moved over to using Jira, but being able to set it up in a way that works for them. But it's kind of interesting we went from like heavyweight to very light for a very long time and then now to something that's a little bit more you could do a little bit more tracking in
0: it. So you're at ThoughtWorks first of all, let's just call out this theme that you have. You're you're a committed person. You yes. were at ThoughtWorks for almost a decade. Yeah. When when you finally made the decision to jump over to Braintree And then you were there for almost a decade as well. Yeah, seven and a
1: half years.
0: When you join a team, you're like, I'm in. I'm in, yes. At ThoughtWorks, as you described, from sort of one promotion or sidestep to the next, to the next, to the next, you essentially accumulated all of the product manager skill sets. But Braintree was the first opportunity that you had to pull it all together as The PM. Yes. Do you remember, I know we have to kind of go back in time, Mm -hmm. but do you remember what your experience was of suddenly being the PM? Was it challenging, even though you sort of knew all the things in isolation?
1: Yeah, I think so. And I think actually, um, the scariest thing for me, though, moving over was more the domain. Payments is really difficult and really hard. And and being a consultant, another really um, great thing about that is you're constantly moving domains. So really, you, the most important thing is like, get your core, the core skill set that you need to actually do software development is really important. And then just be Um, open to knowing you're going to have to learn different domains, and if you do that, you're great. Um, But the domain was really challenging, and it was also very developer-focused. It was APIs and backend integrations, and um, we didn't even have designers at that time. Um, So that, to me, was a little bit scarier, and so I think for the first couple of years when we were focusing really on kind of those deepening um, our backend integrations and building out our infrastructure, I still didn't really feel as much of an owner because a lot of the stuff was coming from the developers because it was such a developer focused. And I was more, I felt at the time, kind of more of a project manager, business and all of the other things and not really owning it. But I think as, as time went on and you start talking to customers and things like that, and then you're like, wow, okay, now I'm responsible for, for figuring out what are we going to do with, with this, where the market's going, what, what's next. Yeah, it was, a little, it was a little scary because I don't have anywhere to go. Like when you're a consultant, you know that you don't actually stay at that company, you can move on to another project. But this was like, no, I'm going to have to do this and I'm going to have to actually see what happens when it goes to market. And if it doesn't work out, I'm going to have to, fig- you know, with my team, of course, figure out you know, how do we fix this and go back? So that is a little challenging because you are seeing it all the way through and you have to deal with the failures as well as the successes. And, but it's also the most exciting part, right? Because when it's good and you do something good and you're getting great feedback from customers, there's nothing better than reading like a really nice tweet or a nice email about it. And when it's bad, it's, it's a bummer (laughs) (laughs) and you have to deal with that, but it's, you learn from that. You learn from the mistakes. And so-
0: Right. So you're you're a team of nine. You're obviously very closely connected to the founders of the company. Were they also developers? Like, was it mostly engineers?
1: No, actually, the founder of the company was Brian Johnson. Um, He started the company because he started selling point of sale systems and he realized how the industry was kind of sketchy because there were now like merchants didn't know clearly like what fees they were paying, um, things like that. And so he's like, I think I can do this better. So when Braintree originally started, what he was doing was being a reseller of merchant accounts to get merchants up and running and white labeling a back end system. And then he hired developers to, who were like, we actually need to build our own thing here. Cause if we really want to be better than anyone else and make it easier for anyone else, we have to have total control of what our product is. So a lot of the product was actually really being driven, driven by the developers, but the founder was not, he was, a business guy, a serial entrepreneur that was just trying over and over again. And then this was the next kind of segment that he he went into.
0: In in case we have folks listening in who aren't sort of hyper-connected to what Braintree does and specifically the problem that they were seeking to solve, can you give us just a very sort of rudimentary explanation of how Braintree became different from what was the status quo at the time?
1: Sure. Yeah, I think there's a couple key um, differentiators. Back when when we started, the big one was it was around just. Procuring a merchant account like how do I get set up so I can sell things online? I don't know how to do that and how do I do that like get a merchant account? What does that mean? What are my rates, etc? And so we really focused on simplifying that and having really um, Great customer service where we're walking merchants through it and telling them throughout the whole process like what's going on and helping them through that
0: specifically for an e-commerce type application
1: exactly so
0: I'm again just to I think it's relevant where we are in the timeline of things Mm -hmm. People are becoming people are coming online. Yes. Traditional businesses that have mostly been brick and mortar are starting to understand they need to have an online presence. This is maybe even before everything went to Amazon. Yes. (laughs) So everyone is is turning on an e-commerce website and then they're like, how do I get paid?
1: Right. Exactly. So you have the business aspect of it and helping them walk through that. And then you have the technical aspect of it. Because back then, ironically, one of the big players was PayPal. And all we heard was, it is so hard to integrate to PayPal, to take our site, even developers, it was really hard. So what Braintree did was develop you know, APIs and uh, for to make it really easy for developers to accept payments. And we kind of handled all that stuff in the back end. So really, you have one integration and then you're, you're set up to be able to process payments and um, so that was that was the other thing that kind of separated Braintree at the time we were going up against, you know, the PayPal's of the world or like authorized at net or the banks where the integrations were terrible, there wasn't clarity into what the merchant had to pay for their fees, um, etc. And, and so that's what made us really different in the beginning. And that's how and we we actually had a couple of really great tech companies like GitHub and 37 signals that were using us. And then we just grew organically from there. Um, It was word of mouth. We didn't really have outbound sales for quite a while, but the technology was speaking for itself. And that's why we got the merchants that we did, like the Ubers and the Airbnbs early on.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, I remember even for us at the development factory, you know, we had built a lot of uh, payment gateways for many, many years. And so when Braintree came to market, it was, wow, this is really going to change how much time it's going to take to build an e-commerce site for a client, how much we can charge or don't have to charge because we don't have to deal with all of the complexities around. Did you have to market it to developers? I mean, who was the customer in those early days in terms of the value proposition?
1: It definitely was developers. It was very um, developer focused. If you ever went into our control panel, you could totally tell it was built by developers and it was more debt focused because we, at the time, what, it was really important to make it as simple as possible to integrate. Um, and we really didn't pay much attention to the control panel, which was the manual. You could log in online to see your transactions or um, process a payment via that portal rather than having to do direct integration. So yeah, it really was. And we, you know, even in the early, in the beginning, we didn't do a lot of marketing. You know, we, it really was so organic in how it grew. I remember specifically when begging customers to use our gateway, when we first came out with it, I was really? like, please, please. And they don't, you know, you're processing their payments. That's their money. That's their bread and butter. Um, So they're not really key to wanting to be a beta merchant on a processing platform. Um, And I remember writing on our window in Wicker Park with a chalk marker. I bought one when we got our first merchant. Well, actually, I wrote our merchants on cue cards and put them up. And then I started tracking our transactions from like one and then 100 and then 500 and then 5,000. And then it just is crazy to think about how that growth happened. Um, Lots of stuff happened in between to get us where they are today. But yeah, it was pretty, pretty crazy.
0: Where did the PayPal acquisition happen in terms of timeline? Like how long were you there before they were acquired? I believe it was
1: Four and a half or five years.
0: Did the IPO happen post-acquisition or pre?
1: Yes. So what had happened is um, we got acquired by PayPal. They were part of the eBay family at that time. And I believe a year-ish later, the split happened. So PayPal then went through an IPO
0: of their own. What was it like getting acquired? I mean, given that you were, you know, you talk about writing in chalk on the wall, tracking from transaction one to 100 to 1,000. Was it immediately different once you were acquired by a large company?
1: No, it, it actually was not. I, I have to say, when I found out we were being acquired by PayPal, I was like, "You have to be shitting me! This is like, this is not happening!" Because it was, it was really kind of happened pretty
0: quickly. You, know? you didn't want that, or you were excited?
1: Well, I was actually you know, that had been the competitor we were fighting against this whole time, right? At the beginning, of course, Stripe came into play and then their, their fierce competitor as well. But we were just like, we have to, we're going to be better than PayPal. They're terrible. We hear these terrible things about their customer service, etc. And so when that, when we, Found out about that. I was like, oh my gosh, no, this, this can't be true. And so in the beginning, to be honest, I had a lot of reservations. I was like, okay, this is this big company. Their, you know, their products aren't that great. They're not known for their customer service. How is that going to impact like the reputation that we've spent all of these years building? But you know, I think when you do get acquired, one of two things can happen, right? The, the company that acquires you can swallow you whole, you kind of lose your identity, um, you lose the ability to kind of control the product that you're building, it just gets wrapped in. And then the second thing that could happen that rarely happens is that you can still control, like what you build in the culture. And I think that's what happened. So in the beginning, there really wasn't a difference. And even still, Once I left, our product team operates separately from the PayPal team. Of course, there's a lot of cross collaboration because we're collaborating on a lot of products. But um, the product team is run separately and we still control our still controlled our roadmaps with input, of course. Um, But I think the company and Bill Reddy, um, who was the CEO at the time we got acquired, who is now running a lot of PayPal's um, merchant um, servicing stuff he did a really good job of helping us kind of protect that culture that we wanted in the way that we worked. And I think what happened was that's kind of seeping in, to, to PayPal, kind of seeing like, oh, okay, I see how they have their team set up. I see how they're the customer service and how they do things and software development, etc. And I think some of those things have kind of leaked over into the to the PayPal world where they're trying to organize their teams in a similar fashion.
0: How were your teams organized? Tell us a little bit about the construct of the team, how information flowed from either individual to individual, or just uh, through the organization.
1: So it's changed a lot. I, I think it. It has even changed. It changed even every six-ish months as we got bigger and problems changed. Uh, But but by the time I left, how we had organized the development team is into different um, organizations within within the team. So thinking about the product holistically and how to break that up in in a way that makes sense. So we ended up with like an organization that dealt with just payments. Where if we want to bring a new payment method to uh, to life, if we want to do an additional integration to a uh, banking partner, that organization kind of took care of that. And then you'd have another organization that would um, focus on some of our, what we call ecosystem stuff. So our marketplace product or our contextual commerce product, things that are a little bit different than our core processing platform. And there are a few more organizations, but within each organization, you would have leads at the top. And we really kind of bought into this this um, philosophy that the leads, there's th- there's kind of three leads. You have someone who's leading technology, you have someone who's leading the product, and you have someone who's leading an engineering manager who's leading kind of the, the people aspect of things. And we broke it down even further where you would have group level, um, and then from there you'd have team level. So it can always roll up, but whatever kind of made sense. And each level would have those three leaders that would work as a team together to make sure things were happening and that the people were taking care of the product was correct and that the tech was was you know on the right track. Yeah, because I
0: think one of the things that's interesting when you look at larger organizations, the one that you're describing, is how does it make sense to carve up the ownership? How does it make sense to carve up the product, right? Because I think that's a tricky, you know if you if you are part of an organization like Apple or, or Microsoft, I think many people listening can readily understand, okay, Microsoft Word is a product, Microsoft Excel is a product. We can see that separation clearly. It starts to feel a little bit stranger, I think, when you think about, no, it's not Microsoft Word, like, yeah, there's somebody who owns that product, Mm -hmm. but then there's actually somebody who owns print or, Mm -hmm. you know, a series of smaller features that live inside the toolbar. Mm -hmm. And that whole constellation of, like, micro features Mm -hmm. has its own product management approach. And I'm curious, when you start to divide it that way, doesn't it create doesn't it have the potential to create a frankenstein product where like the folks over here who are steering the vision of processing and the folks over here who are steering the vision of reporting come back together and it's like oh that's what you all are doing our product looks very different how do you unify in that kind of scenario
1: yeah so that absolutely can happen and i think there's there's probably no way around some of that happening when you start to To scale at that way, uh, scale as much as Braintree had scaled. Um, I think the way we tried to address that is like I said, kind of a, a, almost, I hate using the word hierarchy, but kind of having different levels of what your scope of what you're looking at is. So as a PM at a team level, you really are focused on that one product that you're building, right? And you're not thinking about across the board, because your your goal is to focus on that team. And you would have some another product manager that is then focused on multiple teams and, and making sure that everything that they're building is pretty cohesive. And then when I mentioned the, the organizational leader, they're responsible for even more teams, and it was at that level and the group level where they're communicating with other organizational leads and making sure that they're kind of talking, they're developing the roadmaps together, um, so that there's there's some cohesiveness across the board. I think also we, we ran into the, the the problems that you talked about because naturally you try to break things up as that make it to, to make as much sense as possible, but there's always going to be overlap with certain products, so it's just trying to make sure we have folks that are thinking more big picture and not have everybody focus like really deep into the weeds. And by giving them some of that mind space, they can kind of see what's going on elsewhere and hopefully catch some of those things before they, you know, get to the finish line where you're like, oh my gosh, these two things are not going to work together.
0: Can you tell us a little bit about how road mapping worked in that construct? Who owned what? Was there one sort of director level person who said, here's the roadmap? Was it informed up from each of these product teams was it more collaborative
1: yeah so we changed um we also changed the way we roadmapped over time lots of change yes <laughs> roadmapping is really hard um it's it's super difficult i think when we started out it, it really was when it was early days of brain it was me and developers and we had to figure out what what are we going to go do? And we would just figure it out and do it. We didn't have like a, a, a tw- you know, even a quarter roadmap or anything like that. You it
0: just put a card was, in the court. It was pretty
1: card level. It was great. It was just like, we just got to do what's next. And it was very focused on our goal. Then we, we got to the point where, we, you know, you start building the team out, you start building more leaders, you have a, additional stakeholders. You know, we built a whole operations team and each team has their own stakeholder. Um, so we would get leads in a room and we'd all talk about what is being developed now what do we see is coming up? What are some things we need to do for merchants, et cetera? And we would try as a leadership group to come up with what the roadmap would be. That was really hard because there never really was agreement because you're always going to have this tension between maybe what sales wants versus what operations needs versus what development needs, et cetera. And it felt like, you know, we would come out of there, but there wouldn't be a lot of agreement. And then there was a lot of change throughout, you know, the time that we we're trying to execute the roadmap towards the end the approach we took was let's start thinking in terms of what are what are our business priorities and how do they roll up even into you know Braintree business priorities to PayPal business priorities and from those business priorities what are our product priorities and then taking those priorities and giving those to our PMs and saying okay based on these priorities what you know about what your team is doing now what you know about what we want to accomplish, come back to us with a suggestion on what you think your team should be working on in the next quarter. Some ideas for the second quarter after that. And then anything after that, just a bullet list of uh, contenders.
0: And what would be an example when when you say product priorities that are are kind of being surfaced? Are these more like broad, ambitious goals, like improve usability?
1: Um, No, they're a little bit more specific than that. So I think a good example would be we always wanted to make sure that we were, were the integration of choice, that a merchant wouldn't want to go anywhere else because if they came to Braintree, they could do one integration and get every payment method they would ever need. So they can get PayPal, they can get um, Apple Pay, they can get credit cards, any alternative payment method, and they didn't have to worry about it. So that kind of was our product goal is like, make sure that whatever is happening out in the market and what's coming, that that merchants, we're the, we're the, the integration of choice and there's no other comparison to us. And so it, it, it's broad, I guess, but it is specific because it's like, then you have to think about where's, what's coming up. Oh, is Samsung Pay coming up? Is this coming up? These are things we need to, we are hearing about that we need to factor into our roadmap so that we're, we continue to be that integration of choice.
0: So in this model that you're describing where, you know, some of the, the executives or the management leads bring to the respective product teams, some broad priorities, and then, say, come back with a list of what you're going to do next quarter and maybe the quarter after that. What's the the timeline here? Like, let's say that we're asking for these priorities for Q3. When is that list due by? Q1?
1: <laughs> yeah. Like,
0: how, how much time between when the list comes in and when the roadmap gets, you know, quote-unquote, published?
1: Yeah. So, you know, it depends. It, it it's, it's so again, roadmapping, I'll say this, is so hard and it and you and it never sticks. It These just, are the
0: truths we need yes. for this show. It's, it's so hard. It
1: is. It just, it never sticks. So sometimes we would be publishing our roadmap for the second quarter already into the second quarter because right. things were moving and stuff. I think if, you know, to me, I think if you can publish something before the quarter starts, <laughs> that's, that's good. That's great. If you have an idea um, or just kind of broad things, but then maybe firm them up more of where they're going to be kind of development is going to start is great. But we We, you know, we found ourselves publishing the roadmap in the quarter that we were currently working on. It just, because once we did that whole process of come back to us on like what you want to, you know, what the teams think they want to be able to do, um, then we had to coordinate across all the different organizations and say, does this stuff line up and make sense based on what we know about priorities? And then leadership had to take a look at it and be like, okay, seems good, or maybe we need to tweak this or or that. So that whole process takes a lot of time. I think it was the best process that we had had there. I don't necessarily know if I I think it's the best process. It's just the best one we had had at Braintree at the organization at that size.
0: So it sounds like, if I can visually imagine this, Q2 that's published is the most accurate version of what we're going to do for the next three months. Q3, which is also there, is a looser interpretation of what we kind of said we would get to after that. Mm -hmm. And then Q4 and Q1 and sort of on was just a bunch of the ideas that were in the bulleted list with with an unspoken caveat that these are highly subject to change both in terms of timing. So at any given time, you might see a roadmap that looked like one year or two years long, but the understanding was – the next six months are the most clear, and everything after that is just a suggestion.
1: Absolutely, and I would go as far as I say is the next three months are clear, <laughs> uh, just because the and again it could change based on the nature of, of your product and your business. But we got surprised by Apple Pay. There's so many things that are happening in the payment space. It's changing so rapidly that we had to be we have to be able to react to that. So we could say. I, I can't even remember the quarter, but we could say, oh, we have all these grand plans. And then we hear, oh, Apple Pay is coming out. We need to have that. And then you have to scramble and rework and things kind of fall apart. So to, to say that you could know six months in advance what you're going to do is, to me, a crazy thought. Um, it's even more crazy when you try to get pretty granular with the developers in terms of like how long things are going to take, because you can't you don't want to waste too much time like going into the details of what it is you're going to build and have your developers estimating so you can think you can come up with a really good sense, but they just can't estimate that far out. So you don't even really know at that point. So I think the, I think that exactly how you framed it, which is like, we really have a really good sense for this three months, kind of a better sense for the next three. And then that far out, we just have things that we think we want to do. But as we get closer, we continue to do that process of refining what it is we think we can do.
0: I like your story earlier about PayPal And sort of, you know, the early days of the brain tree mission was just like bite at the ankles of this giant. And then, you know, it worked as a as an acquisition strategy. It's always a good strategy to put yourself painfully in front of somebody else so much that they're like, this is annoying. We're just going to have you. (laughs) which it sounds like is in large part what happened with PayPal. I'm curious if you remember how you felt when Stripe showed up. Because I I think today about Stripe and Braintree as being like, which one?
1: Yeah.
0: Why one over the other? Mm -hmm. Was there a clear moment of like, who is this Stripe? And, And what were they... Trying to do differently, do you think than than what Braintree had been doing?
1: Yeah, so I think they have great technology, right? So what our one of our advantages were was um, was that we were easy to integrate to, and then here comes this, here comes Stripe. They're also very easy to integrate to. So when you're comparing, when you were to compare like our competitors like PayPal to us, there was it's a no-brainer. Like clearly we're the winner. When you start comparing Stripe to Braintree, you're like, hmm both look great, (laughs) like what's, you know, who do we go, Go to. So then you start thinking, okay, this is this is interesting. And what Stripe did better than Braintree at that time is they made the onboarding process super simple. We hadn't gotten there yet. We were still focusing on kind of building out our backends and our reach globally. And we kind of ignored, you know, making the onboarding process super easy. Do you mean
0: for just sorry to interrupt you, but for developers, like the onboarding for somebody who wants to leverage the API?
1: Yeah, sorry, I should be clear there. The onboarding if you want to get a merchant account. So you're brand new to the game before. You even start the backend integration to actually hook up your website to the to the APIs. You have to be approved, and that that's a whole process that has to happen. They they automated that and made it very easy. And we were collecting online, but there was still a lot of kind of manual intervention in order to get merchants approved, so we could be like, oh yeah, you're good to go, hook up and start processing. They did that really really well, and they simplified a lot of things. So we were really behind the eight ball. That's when we kind of like woke up and we're like, oh. They're, this is a serious competitor here. We have to be paying attention. And that's when we kind of start, started scrambling and going into like overdrive of like, okay, we really need to focus on this thing. So it was, you know, a little scary because you're like, oh, this is, they're just, you know, they're coming out of the-
0: They're biting at your head. Yeah, now.
1: exactly. And they're doing a really great job. Um, but it also was really good for us because I think, you know, for a little while, you know, we kind of cornered that space. And so having competition is actually really good because then that gets you like you can't become complacent. You have to always be innovating, innovating and thinking. So that was it was good for them to come into play um, for us that we stepped up our game and had to you know keep pushing things forward
0: so you were there at BrainTree for for a while you left recently can you speak to was part of the reason that you left just because it wasn't the same thing that you signed up for I mean I know seven years is a long time of change but was there an element of I don't like this size of company I don't like this scale anymore
1: I think there was an element of that. I think the biggest thing for me is I got too far away from executing and delivery of software. And I feel very comfortable in knowing, being close to the product and having kind of a say. I had a say, but we had... PMs that I worked with that actually were working with the developers day to day and kind of getting in there and I feel like I got really far away from that and I really wanted to focus more on execution and on delivery and so that's that's probably the main reason I think also the size I think I found when I look back at my days at Braintree I think it's a wonderful company where I was the happiest and what size the company was it was you know we had our you know hundred plus or like our development team was fairly small less than fifty and it was fun and. And it was, you know, I felt like I was part of a lot of things and I was part of the execution and delivery. And I really liked that. So those are probably the two biggest things, the size definitely. And then also just wanting to focus on, on product more than some of the other stuff that starts to get in the way once you, you scale.
0: When we talk about startups, you know, I always think it's interesting when I talk to companies that are a startup of 80 people or 100 people, because there's a certain amount of, scale not necessarily from what the business is doing per se but certainly from how it's been operationalized given that you've been at a startup of nine Mm -hmm. and then you know watch that go from nine to 20 to 50 to 100 where in that spectrum do you think that you'll be most happy is it at the higher end or Would you go back to the grassroots garage type lifestyle?
1: I would go back to the the grassroots garage lifestyle with a caveat, with a very good leadership team or a very good leader. I don't know if I would be ha- happy with someone who's maybe a little bit more inexperienced, who's just starting something up. Um, if there was a good kind of team in place, I definitely think that that would be something I would go back to. I, I do like maybe a little bit, mo- a little bit more established uh, company where there's there's need to grow a product team, um, that the development team isn't that big, so there's there's some need for organization there. So there's you have that opportunity to still be part of that growth, but there's also some, some stuff that has already started that you don't have to kind of, you know, start from the very beginning.
0: One of the things Mm -hmm. I love so much about your story, Jen, is, well, first of all, for anybody listening who is thinking about product management, but has zero experience, Mm -hmm. it's such a great example of how you can get to that center right, by building up these sort of ancillary skill sets as you did, by making the leap eventually. I'm wondering if beyond just your story, do you have any advice to our listeners who want to get into product management, who might be working in one of these adjacent roles, or coming at it from a completely different discipline, how can they begin to affect that change?
1: My best advice is, I know it's really tough to break into product management now. I think that the discipline has changed so much over the years. Uh, Back when I started, even when I started in tech, when it came to even product or project management, there wasn't degree in, uh, you know, a study. There wasn't classes. And I think that has developed so much over over time. Um, So I know it's really hard to kind of bust in without experience. So my best advice, and I think some of the best PMs that I've seen have come from those other disciplines where they know the customers, they know the product. I, I say, if you're in a role right now, try to seek out the PMs in the company. Try to even seek out maybe your manager and say, hey, this is something that I'm interested in. Is there some things that I could do in addition to the work that I'm doing now to give me a little bit of exposure there. And hopefully the company you know wants to see their their employees grow and they have a path for you to do that i also think even within your your the role that you have there are skills that you can gain that are really important to product management right so you can take on maybe a side project where you're you're the pro- project manager of it and you're you're gaining those skills or doing a little bit of analysis and and or something like that so i think finding ways within your current role and then hoping that you can kind of expand and dabble a little bit in the pm role at the role that, in the company that you're at is a really good approach because it's, it's also a little safer as well, right? Uh, so that's my my best advice for folks that are interested in, in PM. And then just get out there and talk talk to folks and go to your meetups and, you know, start meeting people and planting seeds in their minds, you know, and they maybe if something comes up with ju- more junior role, they'll, they'll think about you.
0: You said earlier in our conversation that you were detail-oriented and that makes a great quality of a PM and I think to build on what you were just saying in your last answer there's a lot of skills hard skills that you can go out and learn learn how to be an effective project manager learn how to do quality assurance sort of like you did are there some softer qualities like detail oriented that you think are kind of essential to have or or get good at in order to succeed or thrive in the role?
1: Definitely. I think one of the biggest ones is you need to be able to get buy-in from a lot of different people on the direction you want to take the product. You need to be able to influence them and Depending on, and that approach is going to be different depending on who you're talking to. If you're talking to executives, you're not going to talk. Their their interest in where their mindset is is different than if you were talking to somebody who is maybe on customer customer support. Their perspectives are different, and so being able to really effectively communicate with different groups of people really understand their position on things and bring them along in the journey um, is super important. I think maybe the most important skill that you need to have as a PM because in the end, as a product manager, your job is to ship amazing product, get it out there, and get users using it. No matter how you get there, you know, how you bring people along, that really is your end goal. And so if you can do that and you can talk to all these different audiences and get buy-in and some may not like the approach, some may really like the approach, but it's really kind of telling that story, bringing them along and then getting a great product out where everybody's, you know, happy is a really important skill to have. And it's, there's some finesse in that too. And that's, you learn over time, but That's probably something that I think is the hardest to master and the most important.
0: What about hard lessons learned on the job? Do you remember any difficult moments in your own career where you thought, well, that wasn't great. That didn't work out as I'd hoped. I don't want to make that mistake again, <laughs> either either your own or, or that you saw in other PMs as they were kind of coming up under your leadership. There's
1: probably a couple lessons learned that I have. When it comes to products specifically, I am not a fan of MVPs, however you define them. I'm, I'm just not a fan because what in my experience was, in, especially in a company that's growing super fast, We're always moving to the next thing. So this MVP is not really something that we were going to iterate on. And we did that a few times where we developed something, we put it out there and we moved on to the next thing. And that also, there was something in that around how we organize our teams that we needed to fix. So oftentimes we'd have this product and it would be something that it would just get traction. And then it was like, but that's not really what we intended that thing to, to work for. And so I, for me, it's like, if you're going to put something out there, you need to make sure you're prepared to spend the time to iterate on it and make it what you really want to make it or kill it. And that if you don't do one of those things, it just builds up over time. And when you get bigger and you're doing more things, it's always going to come back to bite you. So that's a big lesson learned for me is be very thoughtful about what you're putting out there and, and just Be careful because you you have to make sure that you spend time on it or you you kill the product. So that I had a lot of those. Um, Also, a lot of like building specifically for merchants, um, our customers, where it was a bigger merchant. They wanted something. We were like, okay, you know, they're a big merchant. um, We have to do this for them. It would suck up development resources we would put it out there, they may or may not use it, they may use it for a little bit and it goes away. And it's like, we should have just said no. So be comfortable kind of saying no, I wish we would have said no more. I think the third one is don't forget your teammates. Don't forget your operations teams. Don't forget, you can't focus solely on your customer. You really have to make sure that you're you're looking at all of the business and making sure you're building products that they can, one, support, but then tools for them to be able to support the products that you're building.
0: What do you love about product management?
1: Building, like being collaborative, solving really hard problems, and building something with a group of people and getting it out there and having customers use it and love it. I mean, there's nothing more satisfying than that. I think being able to kind of see a team a really well um, oiled it's like a well-oiled machine a team that you have just like the collaboration and, and seeing them um, crank stuff out and build great beautiful things is it's just so satisfying product management is the hardest job I, I'm, I'm biased of course but i think it's the hardest job on a development team but it is the most rewarding because you did that you made an impact on people's lives and i think from my brain tree experience, you think about payments, and that's definitely not a sexy industry, right? But <laughs> well, what maybe some think maybe it's some, sexy. Yeah, maybe some. But what was awesome about it is that we were enabling companies that were changing industries. We enabled Uber. when I started and Uber was Processing on brain tree, no one no one knew about uber i was able to get a limo on new year's eve for like 13 dollars or something it was ridiculous cuz no one was using them it wasn't there airbnb when they had first started out and you got to you get to see these companies who are so innovative and you could say wow well, we built back end code and product that enabled their businesses that's that's a super powerful thing so being able to kind of see the impact you have your products have on people is is really
0: satisfying. Yeah, that last point I think is not to be overlooked because Braintree is a great example of the kinds of technologies that did and are leveling the playing field in so many ways, right? Many of those organizations that you describe wouldn't have been able to get to market as quickly gain traction as quickly, fund or, or, or even bootstrap in cases without tools like that. So it's really, I'm glad that you bring that up. And the other thing that I want to reflect on as you describe is, yeah, PMs are awesome. You know, a lot of why we do this show in particular and why we, we choose to seek out great product people like yourself to talk to is because you know there's enough shows available where the CEO gets interviewed. Everyone wants to talk about the CEO and yeah, it's hard to be a CEO and that's a big deal and it can come with a lot of glory and as we're seeing speaking of your friends at Uber, it can also come with a lot of critique mm-hmm. and there are tremendous people out there, thousands of tremendous people out there that are fighting this good fight for great products all day long. So, yeah,
1: yeah I mean, the PMs bring those ideas to life. And I think part, that part of being a PM, you know, there are some PMs who are very, maybe, focus a lot on long term, like, okay, let me think strategically about where this project is going, which is a lot of times in smaller companies what the CEOs and the founders think about too. And there's, there there are PMs that are really great at that. But there are also PMs that are getting shit done. And it's, you know, and it's their strategy in that and that's super important. And I think oftentimes they get forgotten about because exactly what you said, you know, you talk about, oh, the founder of x, y, and z company was like, well, how did that idea get built and who is behind the scenes. And it's very much a good parallel to what Braintree was, which was behind the scenes of enabling companies to focus on their core competencies. That's, I think, what PMs kind of do is like enable companies and dev teams and CEOs and businesses to, to kind of focus on core things as they like get get stuff actually done and out to the market.
0: Are you reading or watching anything interesting that's helping you continue to grow as a person, as a product manager that you want to share with our listeners?
1: Not product focused stuff, but I listen to a lot of Tim Ferriss podcasts. Uh, I even listened to Tony Robbins, which seems a little weird. It seems very self-helpy, but he interviews a lot of really great leaders. So for me, I was more interested in hearing about like what what is what is a great leader and trying to kind of pull nuggets from some from some of those podcasts. That's the stuff that has really um, interested me lately.
0: Yeah, I think that's great. We have to remember there are so many great product books and, and product articles as you describe. We have, a, I think, a bunch of them at 100productmanagers.com and... We can't just be only ever learning about product. We have to remember to grow as individuals. We have to remember to sometimes the best insights come from discoveries and uh, topics that are outside of the core of what we're living and breathing every day. Yeah,
1: exactly.
0: All right. Last question for you, Jen. Is there a side of the mug quote that defines who you are? Uh, as a leader, who you are, as a person that you want to share with us before we go? Sure. It's a simple
1: one. I think it's a twist on the golden rule. But um, I just say, don't be an asshole. (laughs) Just if you always kind of abide by that, I think if more people abided by that, the world would be a better place. (laughs) So that's, that's kind of my motto.
0: Thank you for listening to 100PM, the official podcast for 100productmanagers.com. If you enjoyed the show, please help us get discovered by leaving a five-star rating and review right from your podcast app. Our mission is to help you excel at product management. If you haven't been to our site, please check it out. We have so many great free resources to help you on your path, including all of the recommendations from our fabulous guests week over week. I'm your host, Susanna Bate. We'll be back next week with an all new episode.